Welcome back. On today's episode, we sat down with Jason Haas of Tablas Creek. Not only are these guys a pioneering Rhone house, but I would argue that they're making some of the most elegant wines out of California today. Their backstory is fantastic. They're doing a ton with regenerative farming, and Jason couldn't have been a nicer guy. I absolutely loved filming this episode, and I hope that you enjoy listening to it as well. By the way, it doesn't matter what streaming platform you're listening to us on, don't forget to click subscribe. Cheers. And we're live. Jason. Hey, hey. How Jason are you, buddy? Welcome to Tablas Creek. Ah, Tablas hey. Creek. Cheers. Very excited. This uh, is a... Uh, it's a big story wine. There's a lot of stories about this winery. You guys are doing a lot of cool things in the vineyards. Um, you know, you, you got the connections in France. Oh, and, we do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of backstory to Tablas Creek. Like, even before we started 30 plus years ago, um, I mean, it's a joint partnership. It's equally owned and run by my family and by the Perrin family from Chateau de Beaucastel. My dad was their American importer, and they worked together for 30-plus years, even even before they decided to start a winery together. But wow. um, they would go to California to promote their French wines and come back talking about how much it reminded them of the south of France and wondering why, why the heck nobody was planting Grenache. <laughs> so, so that's how we ended up in Paso Robles in 1989. It was kind of a... An attempt to to riff on Chateau Nifty Pop in a part of California that would that would do well for it. What were you doing before you guys were in the wine business? Were you always in the wine business? We've, we've always, well, always since Prohibition, we've been since in the wine business. Wow! My, my grandfather was on the ball enough to get the first retail liquor license granted by the state of New York after the repeal of Prohibition. <laughs> wow! So he turned what had been a family like a like a gourmet food and butcher shop into a into a, a liquor store and eventually into New York's top fine wine shop. New York's top fine wine shop. Wow. That's so then incredible. how did you, because I mean, you're, so you were brought up in this, right? I mean, you, your whole life, did you know right away this was going to be your career? So I was pretty sure that in the long run, I'd end up in wine somewhere. I and mean, I grew up surrounded by wine people. Wine people are generally pretty great people. Yeah, they're fun. Um, Salt of the earth. Yeah. I, I, I tended, if I didn't have, I didn't make plans for myself in the summer if I didn't get a job, if I didn't have like something I was doing, I tended to get sent to a vineyard in France to work. <laughs> um, so my dad clearly had visions in the long run that, that this is where I was going to end up. But um, I, didn't, I didn't see myself working on the import side, which is what my dad was doing when, when I was growing up. Um, I didn't see myself buying and selling other people's wines. Um, so... It wasn't until this got started when I was in high school that I started thinking, okay, I see myself there. But I also didn't want to go straight into a family business right out of school. Mm -hmm. So I got a master's degree in archaeology. I taught for a couple of years. I ended up getting recruited by a tech company in D.C. to help teach web programming languages because I'd always been comfortable with computers. And this was the tech bubble. And if you could string two sentences together and turn a computer on, you were qualified for a job. but ended up doing that for a while and, and getting business school, joining this little startup and staying for four years and being a part of helping a company grow from seven employees to 80 employees and open up in five new cities. And I did that from 98 to 02, at which point I felt like I'd kind of gotten everything I could get out of that company. Tablas Creek had grown from being a project into being a business that needed somebody to run it. Mm-hmm. And 
I was a little worried. My dad was already in his mid-70s. I was a little worried if I delayed any longer, I wouldn't get a chance to work with him. So I did. Moved out here in April of 02, and I've been a Californian for two decades. Yeah, that's cool. I kind of, same thing. I've been, like, working with my dad for years, you know, and uh, I still do. I mean, he's 84. He's still working 50 hours a week, you know. He's, yeah, I mean, my dad was coming into the vineyard four or five days a week, like, into his late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Keeps you alive. Uh, seriously, kept him young. Yeah, I had lots yeah. of his old friends tell me that like they felt like that was what kept him going. It was yeah. that he was doing something he loved. And if you love it, it's not a job, right? Yeah. So you, you come into the family business uh, right away uh, out of out of after teaching in archaeology, and um, how did you like go from there? You're working with your dad, you know, uh, kind of like I do. Um, where did you move from there? Like, did you have any ideas where you wanted the winery to go? Or did, was there any conflict there? Or? Uh, so there wasn't conflict in the sense of, like, we had different visions or thought we should go different places. Mm -hmm. The challenge was that when we started, we just massively underestimated the amount of work that it was going to take to get Tablas Creek established as a brand. Um, I mean, we, we were doing stuff that was challenging. I mean, we were making blends, which didn't have a category out of grapes that people didn't know and couldn't pronounce from a part of California they'd never heard of with French names that didn't mean anything to them. So we had four strikes on us. <laughs> and like I would go into to wine shops, I'd go out and work with our distributors and, and sell the wines, and I'd go into wine shops and the wine shop owner would be like, yeah, I love these wines, but come with me, I'll show you the 10 bottles I still have left from the case I bought a year ago. <laughs> um, so when I moved out here, my dad basically dropped the marketing problem in my lap. He said, well, I'm pretty sure we're, we're doing a good job with the farming. We're doing a good job. We're making the wines that I envisioned us making. But it's, it's a lot harder to sell than I thought it would be. What do we need to do? So, I mean, those early years, I mean, we were all trying to figure it out. I mean, my dad was out there like, working the streets of New York with, uh, with our distributor in his late 70s, like carrying a wine bag up and down the subway stairs and... Um, but we were we decided to like open a tasting room, start a wine club, start going out and doing events and festivals, start working with our distributors, inviting media to come out and write about us. I mean, like all of the basic kind of blocking and tackling of how you should get a new brand established was stuff that we sort of assumed we didn't need to do because everybody knew and loved Bocastel and therefore would somehow by osmosis figure out that Tablas Creek was associated <laughs> and buy it. Mm -hmm. So the, the year that I moved out here in... O two, we made twelve thousand cases of wine and sold four thousand cases of wine. That clearly, that doesn't when the math doesn't work. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of the writing was on the wall. Like we've got maybe two years to figure this out before we just kind of get crushed under our own back inventory. And so, so we really we were throwing everything we could think of at the wall to see what to see what stuck in those early years. And we we gradually pulled ourselves even by. 05, we were making and selling like 15,000 cases of wine each. Um, and then a few years later, you get to 09, um, we were selling 20,000 cases of wine. And after three years of drought, we were only making 12. That also doesn't work. Wow. <laughs> but it's sort of these these pieces, like thinking of thinking of Tablas Creek as a business that that my dad, he was sort of over. Like he, he built up and run sold two businesses already like he wanted to drive the forklift in the cellar he wanted to he wanted to sit around the blending table and taste the wines and put things together he he, he wasn't he wasn't as interested at this point in his career in 
like having annual meetings with all of our distributors and boring set the <laughs> goals and lay out incentive plans and, and and set up even set up the the meetings with writers and then the people who have the potential to go out and and tell your story for you so mm-hmm. so that, that that landed on me i got to, i got to figure that you get out. to do all that <laughs> so in the early days what the hell made him think about rolling varietals i mean that was it, it took from a place like you said that no one knows about at that point in time with varietals they can't even pronounce where did that come from so it basically came out of his friendship with the Perrin family i mean he'd worked with them since the late 60s um he he made his name in his early days as an importer working with wines from burgundy and bordeaux um he was the exclusive American importer for Chateau Lafitte and for Petrus in the 60s and early 70s. He was the the incredible stable of Burgundies that Vineyard Brand still imports, mm-hmm. um, the Gouges and the Sozes and the Montjards and the Girardins and all of them. That was Those are relationships that he had back into the 1950s. Hmm. Um, but he got convinced in the late 60s that the future of wine importing was not carving up Burgundy and Bordeaux finer and finer. It was finding regions that were making great wines, offering good value, and were a little less well-known in the United States, and then right. trying to find a producer from those regions whose wines he could use to help introduce the whole region to the U.S. market. So that was how we ended up in the cellars of Jacques Perrin in 1966, and managed to convince Jacques not just to appoint him the, the American importer of Bocastel, but also to agree to lend him his two sons to travel around with him and introduce Americans not just to Bocastel, but Chateauneuf du Pape and the Rhone more generally. And they would make two or three or four trips a year to different parts of the U.S. Um, California was an important part of those trips because it's a huge wine market. Of course. Um, and my dad at that time was representing some of the first generation of Napa and Sonoma wineries to hit the national scene, like Kistler, Phelps, Ridge, Chapelet, Spring Mountain, Clodeval. He helped launch Sonoma Coutrere in the 80s. And so whenever the Perens and he were together in San Francisco, they would drive up to wine country for a day and taste wines and talk about what they found. And what they mostly found was, like, this would be a great place to grow Grenache. Why is nobody growing Grenache? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And we've said it on this trip uh, countless amount of times. Paso is the perfect region for uh, so many different varietals. And Grenache grows uh, here specifically. I mean, there's uh, other areas of... Uh, Paso, where obviously it's being grown, but in this little beautiful cutout here, this is this is great. I mean, this really is Rhone varietal mecca. It's <laughs> totally it's Rhone it's Rhone heaven. Right. Yeah. So thinking about that far in the future of what this could be, I mean, that's generationally. I mean, that's you're thinking this is going to be something for my kids, my kids' kids, my you know great grandkids. That's it's a brilliant way to think, and obviously it's been successful. Um, it's. <laughs> I, that that reminds me very much of a, one of the early years I was out here. I was walking out into the middle of the vineyard with my dad, and we had just planted a another ten acres or so that were down like just behind where we're sitting. Um, and he stood there for a little while, and he sort of waved at the vineyard. He's like, you know, like I didn't plant this for me. Like I'm not going to be around when this is producing great stuff. Honestly. Like, I wasn't even really thinking of you, but this is going to be amazing for your kids. Oh, uh, yeah? <laughs> so, like, he was clearly thinking generationally. He was yeah. thinking he was thinking about creating something that was going to have a lasting impact and, and have the potential to define a, a category in California that was, at that point, kind of undefined. 
I think we've gotten a lot of that from a lot of winemakers and, and uh, winery owners in Paso. It seems like the guys who have been here for a while have really carved out a, a, a multi-generational plan and also a plan to um, cherish Mother Nature and, you know, give back to the planet in the way of grape growing with, you know, um, any biodynamic, regenerative, uh, farming. regenerative farming. And, and I know you guys do that. Yeah, we, we've, we've been organic since we started. Bocastel's been fully organic since the 1960s. Hmm. Um, but we got our own organic certification back in 2003. We've been biodynamic for most of the last decade. Uh, and we, we were the first winery in the world to get the new regenerative organic certification last year. Wow. Um, and, I mean, I think these, are, these, these sorts of farming, this sort of farming is incredibly well suited for grapevines in general. I mean, grapevines live like a human lifespan. So the investments that you make in any one year or any couple of years, you have a long time to enjoy the benefits of that. Um, and also because they've got really deep root systems, it takes a while for the things you're doing at the surface to work their way down to where the roots are. Um, so I, I think it's a, the kind of a crop that is a good one to, to practice these sorts of farming, sort of farming on. Um, but it also, because you're generally working with a vineyard for generations, um, it's in your interest to take good care of it. it so do you have kids? I do. You do. Two boys. <laughs> Two boys. <laughs> 16 and 14. <laughs> Are they out here? If you were out here this day, next week, they, we would have pulled them out of school. They're, we're going to be pulling them out of school a couple of days going uh -huh. forwards to, uh, to, to give, them, give them some days working during harvest. That nobody, nobody at the school district is going to hear this, right? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> Do they love it? I mean, are they into like you know? Because my, you know, we retail wine retailers for years and years and years. I have two boys. It's not their gig, you know, and it's always interesting. And you know, uh, it's always interesting to see if they'll come back to it, you know. But like, do they like? Is it too early to tell? It's too early to tell. Too early. To tell. I mean, they're interested in it in the sense that like they're interested in how things grow. They're interesting mm -hmm. in like the chemistry behind things like fermentation. Um, well, that's a uh, good start. It's a start. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's a really a good start. one. Like, I can't start, even get yeah. them to really taste wine. Like, I, mean, I would love it if it be like, <laughs> like, this is an amazing wine, you should try it. They're like, ah, it just smells like wine. <laughs> it just smells like wine. Okay, fine. Uh, like, I'll get there eventually, I'm sure. Yeah. But, um, I don't know, my, my dad always did a really good job of kind of, letting me know that he was holding the door open without me feeling like he was pushing me through it. Right. Um, and so if it ends up being the right fit, they'll figure, they'll find their way there. Yeah. Um, I, I hope they do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a cool outlook, man. I mean, that's, that's, I think the way any parent should look at things, right? I mean, open mind, here you go. <laughs> you got my backing, but hopefully you end up back here with the wine. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, it was cool. It was cool to see how happy it made my dad to have me out here. Right. Yeah. Um, to have somebody to be like talking about all this stuff with, mm -hmm. and I'm sure my mom was super grateful that like he had somebody else to talk about all this with. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's cool to like geek out with someone about it. And I mean, I can't even imagine geeking out with your kid. I got a four-year-old, and she'll tell you what <laughs> Chardonnay pairs with. She, you know, she's fun. Uh, you know, I'm hoping that she finds herself in the wine world. You know, it's it's been great to me, but. Again, going back to 
really driving Paso and early adapters to it, that must be trippy to think about. I mean, right now Paso's exploding, right? It's it's in our market. I mean, probably the last couple of years, maybe. But probably for big time. for people like us, we've been preaching the gospel of Paso for years. I mean, this yeah. is kind of the perfect setup. Thank the you. The climate is great. People are going to get <laughs> bored because I'm going to say, you know. Paso has terroir. Paso has its own sense of place. You taste it in the wines. Yeah. And, you know. So many different soil compositions, and you're growing everything out here. It is the Wild West. People can plant what they want and see if it works, and if it doesn't, then we'll try something else, right? So you have the ability to explore and try things, and some of those things end up awesome. And you have to think, like, you guys are at the forefront of that. I mean, thinking generationally look how people look back at Robert Mondavi and what he did for you know yeah. Napa that's kind of cool to be at the forefront of Paso I mean to me that's that's something cool to geek out about I mean we, we <laughs> looked well, I say we I was in high school I was not doing <laughs> uh, we as families looked for four years before settling on Paso we didn't come into this with land here we came into this with an idea that we wanted a particular kind of soils, a particular kind of climate, and enough rainfall to farm without having to irrigate. And looked up and down California to, to see where we could find those three things. And this was the only spot that satisfied all three of them. Hmm. Um, the, the, the soils, and you can see it, all these rocks that are lining everything, these are all limestone bits that we pulled out of the vineyard as we were getting ready to plant. That's common in a lot of the great wine growing regions in Europe, but it's rare in California. It's only found in this little sliver of the central coast and only within about 20 miles of the ocean. So when you get up to Napa or Sonoma, they've got different soils. They don't have these old seabed, um, these white chalky soils, but that's what they have in Burgundy. That's what they have in Champagne. Yeah. That's what they have in Alsace. That's what they have in Chateau Neuf du Pop. Um, so that was a big thing that, that drew us to the central coast. Um, and then the climate, and that's, that's why so many grapes do well here is that you've got this incredibly long growing season with the really big swing in temperature between the daytime high and the nighttime low. That what is means your diurnal here? 45 degrees on average. Gosh, that's unbelievable. It's crazy. It's How do you nuts. keep up with it? Like, you know, like layers. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there are times of year where it's too hot to eat lunch outside and too cold to eat dinner outside on the same day. On the same day. Because the, the breeze kicks up and it's like 60 and, and windy in the evening after being 90 and, and scorching hot during the middle of the day. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then in the middle of that night, it might be 55. Like, and funny, because the last couple of days we've been here, this time of night's been pretty breezy the last uh, three days, right? And right now it's pretty quiet. Yeah, this is one of the, so, so basically the way the weather patterns usually work here is that you have a, a front that comes through and that produces kind of morning fog and cool, cool evenings and a sea breeze. And then it gets a couple of degrees warmer each day, each day, each day, until you get to a high pressure system, which is what's settling in tomorrow. And that kind of makes it still, those are the days where it really heats up, like it might get up into the mid to upper 90s tomorrow. Um, and then there's supposed to be another front that comes through on Wednesday, and that's going to cool it back down into the 70s, and it'll gradually build up from there. But we, it's it, that 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 kind of flow of a few days where it's hotter, and then it cools off. A few days where it's hotter, and then it cools off is totally normal for the harvest season here. Do you worry about this heat? Like uh, you now that we're har you're in harvest, right? I mean, you're yeah, really dead smack in the middle. Dead of harvest. smack in the middle of harvest. Like, I mean, are you gonna are you harvesting in the evenings right now and just? 
or are you doing morning and you no know? we don't harvest in evenings we basically we will either if it's whites we'll usually do a, a very early morning harvest like starting with lights at 2 30 or 3 in the morning and then going until like 10 or 10 30 or 11 um reds matter less so we'll generally pick our whites first and then if we need to pick reds from like nine to noon we'll pick reds and then kick off for the day before it gets too warm but this has honestly been such a benign harvest season in terms of weather. We've had very few days, even in the mid 90s, let alone like upper 90s or hundreds. There've been years where it's been upper 90s, low hundreds for weeks on end at Gosh. this time of year. So this has been this has been lovely. Nice, nice. things are coming in. Nice we get and breaks, slow. like things coming slowly. <laughs> like today, we didn't pick anything. We were just like it was chilly over the weekend. Um, Things moved, but not too much. Like it gave us a chance to do this extensive sampling today. We picked a couple things we're going to pick tomorrow. We know there's more coming Wednesday, mm -hmm. but this is this is what you hope for during harvest. You yeah. hope for these kind of brief warm-ups to to push the grapes along, and then it cools off again, and things slow down, and you can catch up. It seems like everyone has been just this is the perfect year. We've had like such an easy harvest and everyone's knocking on wood. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. I, could, I shouldn't even be talking <laughs> yeah, about maybe it. Maybe we right shouldn't now. be talking about it, you know? <laughs> but to this point, it's been, uh, it seems like it's going to be a great year. It, I mean, it has all of the hallmarks of a really top-notch vintage, um, except that it's scarce. I don't know if you're hearing that from other people, but we, our quantities are down somewhere between a quarter and a third. Really? Oh, I, I think uh, we heard that from two other wineries, too, that they yeah. were down a little bit, you know, more than normal. That was even today. Yeah. Two wineries and that's said a, the same thing. that's a jump. Why, why are you down so much? Well, we had two dry winters in a row, um, including this past winter, where we got, like, as a big picture, we got 16 inches of rain, which, which doesn't sound too bad except that 13 of those inches came in two days. Wow. So we had a huge storm on December, on January 28th and 29th. And other than that one big storm, we got three inches of rain the whole rest of the winter. So um, as much as our soils are super absorbent, they can't possibly hold 13 inches of right. rain in, in, in 48 hours. So we, we didn't even get the benefit of all 16 of those inches. So that's part of it. And part of it also is that it was cold this winter. Um, we had 43 frost nights which, I mean, frost is normal here in the winter, but an average winter might be 25. Wow. So 43 frost nights, including a couple in mid-April, that, that tends to be, tends to produce smaller clusters with smaller berries because the vines are just a little cautious as they're at the point where they're setting crop. So that's, we've seen that in a handful of other vintages. Um, the vintage that this most reminds me of is 2007, which was, an incredible vintage in terms of quali quality, but light in terms of quantity. Yeah. So I know you were saying that you uh, originally, when you were looking for places, you uh, were looking for somewhere you didn't have to irrigate. Is that still the case? Are you no irrigation? So we have about half of the vineyard that we've planted, which is set up entirely without irrigation. So no wide spaced, um, dry farmed, no irrigation infrastructure. So we couldn't irrigate it even if we wanted to. The other half we've planted on trellises closer together to force the vines to compete with each other. And those we run irrigation lines, right. but we irrigate them in a way that over the long run weans them off of that irrigation. So instead of irrigating a little bit every two weeks, we'll irrigate once or twice a summer, but deeply so that right. it, it saturates not just the topsoil, but gets down into the deeper layers and then dries out from the top down and discourages the roots from growing at the surface. So 
over a decade of farming like that, you can wean those blocks off of irrigation. Of course, if you have successive years of drought, uh, you may need to supplement those blocks a little bit. But right. um, we didn't want to be in a place where we knew we were setting, setting ourselves up to have to irrigate every year. Hmm. Um, I've noticed that everybody from the winery is starting to go home. <laughs> and, I, and I know, and I know that you're busy, and you know this is harvest. You're busy. We, I just say we appreciate that you taking the time out of your day to come sit down and talk with us. Hey man, you came all the way across the country to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> the least I can do. But we did it in the busiest time of the year, so it is much appreciated for sure. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure, and this is a fun time of year. It's a good time of year to come visit wine country. Yeah, and oh, well, I'm gonna do a shameless. So. <laughs> I'm gonna do a shameless pl- plug. October sixteenth, we'll have a Tablas Creek lunch at Aqua Alta. The menu's already set. Uh, Freddie's pulling the wines. And uh, if you want to learn a little bit more, Freddie is a fun, fun guy who uh, really has a a good history in the wine business and knows your stuff very well. He does. He's the old school vineyard brands. I mean, this is is the company that my dad founded and ran for so long. And Freddie's been part of it for as long as I've been out here, yeah. So, so October sixteenth. Don't don't forget about that to come out <laughs> out and uh, try these wines. Um, Jason Haas, thank you so much. Totally, my pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you both. All right. Cheers. 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 Guys. <laughs>